faith. What is it? Being sure of our hope. Convinced of what we can't see. By faith, we understand the world was set in order at God's command. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain. And for his faith, God commended him as righteous. By faith, Noah trusted God and constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. By faith, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, believing God would still fulfill his promises. By faith, Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. By faith, God's chosen nation crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and praised him as it swallowed up the Egyptians. By faith, Rahab the prostitute escaped destruction because she welcomed the spies in peace. Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, David, and the prophets. By faith, they administered justice, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire. But others were imprisoned, murdered, and wandered in deserts, mountains, and openings in the earth. We are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So get rid of every weight, of every sin, and run. Run with endurance the race set before us. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the champion and guide of our faith. For promised joy, he endured the cross, thought nothing of its shame, and having risen again, has been handed his deserved glory at the right hand of the throne of God. By faith, as we come to the conclusion of this sermon series called Heroes of Faith, it's all about ordinary people doing extraordinary things for God because they had extraordinary faith. That means you, me, we can do great things for God, not because we're special, but because we have extraordinary faith and God in us, through us, can do the impossible. Amen? Well, today is our uh, final final uh, s- uh, segment on this sermon series, as I was saying before, and we're looking at Esther. Have you ever faced a time in your life where your circumstances just seem plain awful? Like they could not in any way get worse, only to find out they got worse. There's a lot of whisper amens I can see already. Maybe you've been in a marriage where it seems that your spouse doesn't care. Or it went really, really bad. Or maybe you face the loss of loved ones. Maybe you face financial hardship of no fault of your own. Maybe you've been betrayed, taken advantage of. Maybe you're facing medical conditions or problems that are just seeming to be overwhelming. I want to tell you, 
that often in the midst of difficult circumstances, God is busy working behind the scenes and wants to use you to do extraordinary things even in the midst of those hardships and those unbelievable circumstances. Sometimes we can't see Him working in those times, though. Often it's only after the fact that we actually see the hand of God. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at Esther, and, and the circumstances of her life were not so good. But God had a plan and used her in the midst of those circumstances. So as we go through this story, I hope to give some insight into what's going on. And so you might understand not only her story better, but learn some incredible biblical truths for your life today. How many know that the Word of God is powerful, that this is relevant for your life today, even though it was written thousands of years ago? And so... Let's begin with Esther chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, that's six months. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When, he, when it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people. This is the closing ceremonies. And he does this for another seven days. Who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Well, let's just move to verse 7. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine, reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking. For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. So if anybody and everybody wanted to get drunk, go for it. On the best stuff, it didn't matter. So let's get a little bit of history going on here with, with uh, Xerxes. After he became king, he put down a couple of revolts. He handled Babylon pretty good in Egypt, and he had hopes of conquering Greece. And so part of the six-month celebration was because he wanted the Persians and, and the Medes to be able to say, hey, we're going to be with you when you go fight Greece next. So there was some political play going on with this six-month party. And then he wanted to make sure his own people were happy. So again, now he's using his wealth to make sure his own people will get a special celebration, at something better than the Olympic closing celebration, to make sure they're going to be committed to him. This guy is self-serving at the highest level. And he thinks he's all that because he's had a couple good victories, and most kings are like that, most dictators are like that. Well, so here they are, all the macho military men and leaders of Xerxes' power and his, and his empire, and they're all getting drunk and getting more drunk 
And then the king decides, since he's in the best state of his mind, if you know what I mean, and, and this is the current situation that his current queen, Vishti, is in. Now, she's having her own special private banquet for all the women, which we don't understand why that's going on. That, they should have all been together, but it's strange. So while she's taking care of her banquet, the king and his banquet, he says, hey, bring my queen and put on her crown. And that bring her in front of all of these men so they can gaze at her. Let's, let's just read. On the seventh day, verse 10, of the feast. So this is the final of the final. When King Xerxes was in high spirits. That just means he's drunk. He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehuman, Bezda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigatha, man, that's Bigtha, <laughs> Zithar, and Carcass to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze at her beauty. Really? For she was a very beautiful very beautiful woman some commentators state that really the request was that she would literally be a striptease and the only thing would be on her would be the crown and that would be it kind of makes sense why she said no i'm not interested well the king didn't like this see the way it's set up here if you don't do what the king wants you to do he can do one of two things. Have you executed, and nobody would hesitate, or dispose of you. That means dethrone you, take your crown from you. It means you will dethrone you from being any part of royalty, take your home, all your wealth, and you are now homeless with no wealth. And nobody's going to hire you because the king don't like you. So... This is where we find ourselves in Esther chapter 2, verse 2. So his personal attendants have suggested something. Well, now that you don't have a queen, I have an idea, boss. How about we have a beauty pageant, and you find the best one and make that one your queen? Let us search the empire to find... Beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Hegai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. Actually, for a year. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king. So he put the plan into effect. A search is made throughout the whole empire. He rounds up all the beautiful young virgins. Can you imagine how they must have been just weeping and crying? Why would I want to go there? I don't know this man. I mean, it must have been horrible. But they all go on, undergo all these spa treatments. I'm sure some of them were conceited and stuck up because look at me, I'm in the harem. 
and others were probably frightened. And this is where we meet Esther. She's young, and she's Jewish. She's a Jewish virgin. And her older cousin, Mordecai, has taken her in because her parents are deceased. And he takes her in and adopts her as his own. There's, there's an interesting parallel I see between Esther and Joseph. Both had horrible circumstances in their life, very painful circumstances in their life. And yet somehow God brings them to a royal palace where eventually God uses them to set his people free, to rescue them. It's amazing. So let's look at verse 7. This man had a very beautiful, referring to Mordecai, a beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah. Now that is her Jewish name, and it literally means myrtle. Okay. Who was also called Esther. Now that's her Persian name is Esther. And that literally means star. Here's an interesting note. The myrtle tree blooms or bears a flower that looks like a star. Isn't that interesting? Next verse. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. Verse 10. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. He, he's, he's a pretty good dad. He's taking that role on. So let's consider what we can learn from this story of Esther. So for your notes, if you want to start filling in some of the blanks. Number one, learn to listen up. Learn to listen up. Esther listened to the wise counsel of her cousin, Mordecai. And she kept quiet about her Jewish heritage you know sometimes you don't have to share everything you got to be careful the right thing at the wrong time produces failure you know what i'm saying just ask the cook you do the right thing at the wrong time it's not going to come out let's consider esther's life for the moment her parents have died. She's living with her older cousin who adopted her. The king is taking young girls, virgins, out of their homes. And these young girls must now live away from their family and friends in a harem. And what all that means and represents. So considering all this, it's easy to see how she could have just been withdrawn and living in bitterness. But she's not. The scripture actually tells us that she found favor with all these other people, including this particular eunuch. She learned, number two, how to be content. 
in spite of her situation, in spite of her circumstances, Esther's contentment yielded this inner beauty that others could obviously see as striking. It made her stand out. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but a beautiful person, handsome, beautiful, and if all of a sudden inside of them is this ugly, ugly spirit, they're bitter, they're angry, they just, hi, and then they speak. And now all of a sudden everybody wants to vomit. There is truth to this old adage, beauty is within. Because you can make a beautiful, attractive person on the outside so repulsive, nobody wants to be close to them. And I have also seen people who are not, let's say, the most pleasant to view on the outside. But the inside is so gorgeous. Oh my goodness. You can't help but be in awe. Why? Because true, authentic, sustainable beauty comes from within. And I believe when you have the ability to be content in all circumstances, you know where we get Philippians 4.13? It, because most of us don't read the few verses before. He says, I have learned, whether I've got a lot or i got nothing, I've learned in all circumstances that I can, be, I can do all things through Christ who strength. I have learned how to be content. And we use it for all of our sports. We can do all things through Christ who strength. And I've used it that way, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying I've learned how to be content. When relationships aren't right, When the money's not right, when somebody is sick, when things are messed up at work, I've learned to be content. Something about that contentment brings a radiance and a beauty that others see. And they're drawn to it. They're attracted to it. Verse 15 Chapter 2, Esther was the daughter of Abihel, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch, in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested. She learned how to listen up. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. People with extraordinary faith know how to trust God and to be at peace and to be content. So we learn from Master how to listen up. We learn from Master how to be content. But what else can we learn? As the story continues, we find that Esther is finally made queen and her cousin Mordecai um, gets a promotion as well. Uh, at the king's gate, and there he overhears about a conspiracy to assassinate the king. He tells the queen, obviously Esther, she informs the king, the bad guys are found out, they are executed, 
Um, now, here's important. Depending on your Bible version you read, you will hear hanging or impaling. Well, the Persians were, the way they viewed hanging, they would view hanging on an impaled piece of stick, kind of like Nero would do it. So we understand hanging thinking of a noose, but they would do it the other way. So if you have impale in your Bible reading or hanging, it's meaning the same. Okay? So in chapter 3, we find uh, a new guy who is actually the villain, and his name is Haman. And he's exalted to a place of honor higher than anyone else. And everyone now, because of the king's edict, must bow down at Haman when they see him. Um, he's just a great villain. I mean, you really like to hate this guy. And um, Haman is an Agagite. Now, which is to say he's a descendant of King Agag. Who remembers who King Agag was? He's the guy who was the king of the Amalekites. Now, King Saul was ordered to kill all of the Amalekites, but he didn't kill this king. Remember, when Saul finally did die, he couldn't kill him. He didn't die, and he said, kill me before my enemy comes. And the guy who killed him was his servant, who it was in secret, an Amalekite. Why are they so vicious? Why are they called the enemy of God's people? Why does God say they're, they're the enemy? And it's because when they were going through the desert, the Hebrew people, people with Moses, on the very back end where all the weak and the feeble ones were at, that's where the Amalekites attacked. And God was angry at the Amalekites for what they had done. And he had sworn they would be the enemy of the Jews forever. And that's why God wanted them all gone. They showed no mercy. And so, here we are. An ancient enemy of the Jews is now the villain. And he's so mad at Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow down when he walks by. Word gets back to Haman, and now he goes, he won't bow down to me. How many of you notice that when, there, when there's a big shadow from a small guy, you know what's really going on? The sun's going down. And that also means he's going down. And so all of a sudden, you have this situation where he's upset. So not only does he want to take out Mordecai for the disrespect but he wants to kill every single other Jew in all of the empire of the king. This guy is, like I say, you just really love to hate him. So, in Esther chapter 3, verse 7, So in the month of April, during the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Purim, Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. Matter of fact, that's where the Jewish festival comes is from this story. Um, when they do this festival, they read the whole book of Esther. And when they get to the name of Haman, they all stamp their feet. Because they want to stamp out his name and may he never be remembered in history. It's an interesting thing. So, at the day selected was March 7th. Nearly a year later, then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people 
scattered through all the provinces of your empire, who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people. They refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. He's just planning on genocide. And he's just trying to get the king to go with him. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. And the king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman. Wow, that's powerful. Son of Hamidatha the Agadite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, The money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So notice, notice how he's scheming. He doesn't use specifics. Oh, king, there's a certain group of people. And and they don't follow the rules. And they keep themselves separate. This could be really, really serious if we don't deal with it now. Have you ever had anybody do that to you? Not give you specifics. Just, hey, I know you're a person of influence. I, I know you're wise. And, and I just want to know, what, what do you think we should really do in this case? And they lead you into a decision or into a thought process that you, if you knew all the facts, would be in the complete opposite direction. And what did they do next? Well, you know, a pastor said... Dot, dot, dot. And then the word gets back to the pastor, or it gets back to you, or it gets back to whosoever. And you're like going, that's not what I, what? You ever been in that situation? Because when you're dealing with a Haman, you're dealing with a person who is scheming, who's defiant, who is doing what they're doing because they're trying to be self-serving. And they will use and abuse others, even in power, for personal gain. And that's Haman. But the truth is, when people behave like that, when people are like him, he's a bully. Isn't it funny when bullies get confronted really, really hard, they turn into immediately what they really are? Cowards. Cowards. We'll find that out in just a little bit. So the decree was issued, we're going to kill all the Jews on March the 7th. And it was sent everywhere. Verse 15. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers. And it was so also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink. Hey, let's have a beer. But the city of Susa fell into confusion. Why? There's a lot of Jewish people there. And they're trying to figure out what happened. What's going on? And Mordecai hears the decree that the Jews are to be slaughtered in 11 months on a particular day. And he and all the Jews tear their clothes and they put on sackcloth and ashes and they're mourning in distress. Word gets back to Esther, who's in the harem, by the way. She can't be out in public. So she has to hear this through a messenger. And she hears it and she says, hey, 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 go tell um, Mordecai, I need to know what's going on. Why are you wearing this? And bring, put on these new clothes. And so Mordecai tells her 
what's happening through the messenger. And then as that report gets back, Esther, can you imagine what she's going through? Like, how do I do this? I mean, she's been a queen for a little more than four years. She lives in the palace with the guy who would kill her or anybody at a moment's notice. He is insane. He just makes decisions with not even thinking. He's a drunk. He's sleeping with other women whenever, wherever. She's never allowed to be in his presence unless he calls for her, and she hasn't called for her for over a month. And now, you know, Mordecai, her cousin, dad, is saying, hey, we're going to die if you don't go do something. So these are the circumstances, and they're not ideal. So Mordecai wants Esther to approach the king, plead for mercy. And this is what she says in 13. So Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, don't drink. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. Why? Because Haman will find out and he will have you killed. And once that, because it's a king's decree, it cannot be revoked, even if it's the queen. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise some other place. Mordecai knew God's, God's divine intervention was on its way. But he wanted her to realize, you're not in the palace by accident. You think you got there all on your own? You're not beautiful for no reason. God made you beautiful for a reason. God has put you here for such a time as this. Wow. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Mordecai directs Esther to remember who is in control. Here's number three. Learn to look up. Learn to look up. We need to look up to God who is in control. We need to look up to him who is able to accomplish more than we could ask or imagine. We need to look up to the one who uses all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. How often we keep our eyes on the problem and we trust in our own wisdom and in our own strength. Maybe I'm the only one. So Esther does just that. Once again, she listens up to her wise counsel of her cousin. And now she's, she's looking up to God. It's interesting, the book of Esther doesn't mention the word God one time in all of the book. But you see the finger of God everywhere through it. So here we are in chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. What does that mean? Just go really fast. It means 
to deny their flesh food and drink. To put their body under control so that their spiritual senses would be heightened. That they would be in submission to God. They would be trusting Him with everything. Body, soul, and spirit would be in surrender to God. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then she goes on to say, and then though it, it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. She looks up. She trusts the plan of God. She trusts him for her eternity, and she trusts him for the safety of the Jewish people. Now, here's a hard one. Number four, learn to speak out. Some people have no problem with this. They speak out probably when they shouldn't. But learning to speak out in obedience to God's direction is the difference here. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe at the lunchroom, maybe you were with family or friends or the neighbors, and man, it was uncomfortable, you were fidgeting because God was saying, ask them if they know Jesus. Stop it, Lord. They've driven by hundreds of churches, they know something about God. And God won't stop. He's pricking at your heart. He's saying, get that God talk going. I believe 500 God talks. We're over 200, folks. We got till June. Let's get on it. Why? One of the lessons we learned is a time to speak out out of obedience any church can say, let's go build a building. And I want to do that. Not a bad vision. But who cares about a building? The building's not going to heaven. Souls are. Or they're going to the other place. If we can learn to reach out to the lost, we're fulfilling Matthew 28 and 19, the Great Commission, making disciples. So here we are. She's learning to speak out in obedience. And wow, what, what drama is going on in this? Verse 1, on the third day of the fast, Esther puts on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace. Whoa, you're not allowed to go into the inner court where they do all the business of the kingdom unless you've been called by the king. Not just the queen, anybody. She put on her royal robes, entered the inner court of the palace, just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court. Now think about it. When we started this, Vashti wouldn't dare go in to the courtroom. Wouldn't dare go before the king. And he invited her here She's going without invitation. Polar opposite. And this time, 
What's the king going to do? As she's walking, all of a sudden he looks at her. Praise God, she's beautiful. And he opens out, brings out his scepter. And she goes and she reaches and she touches it. She's welcome. She's not dead. So, we continue. He welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Then the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I'll give it to you, even if it's up to half the kingdom. That's just one of those king's uh, sayings, but it really doesn't mean he's going to give her half the kingdom. So Ecclesiastes 3 tells us there is a time to be silent and a time to speak. And she has learned this is a time to speak. She listened to the wisdom of Mordecai. And she was silent about her heritage. But now she's been straightened to risk her life. Because now is not the time to be silent. But to speak. She's been put in a position where she can speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. It says in Proverbs, it's not in, in, your, in the PowerPoint. It says, Proverbs 31.8, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. If you see something that's not right in the workplace, if you see something that's not right on the sport field, in the classroom, speak up. The Bible wants you to. So here's where many people miss it. They figure God wants me to speak, so I will speak. Who cares how it comes out? God does. God really cares, not just about what you're saying, but how you say it. Moses was so mad that he beat on that rock more than once. And it was because of how he did what he was told to do that he wasn't able to enter in the promised land. It matters. Not just what you say, but how you say it and when you say it. Right thing, wrong time, failure. So verse 4, Anessa replied, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. You risk your life to have a meal with me? Huh. So they come to the banquet. Now either Esther is still a bit nervous or she senses that this is not the right time because she asked the king what her, he asked what her request is, and this is her response in verse 7 and 8. This is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, Please come with Haman tomorrow to another banquet. I will prepare you for you. Then I will explain what this is all about. Now, I tend to think that this second banquet is a divine delay by God because of the story that happens next. Haman goes and walks, and again, Mordecai won't bow down. He's so upset. He cries to the wife and the family and his friends, and they say, hey, like second in command man why don't you build the gallows up and have Haman hanged on it or impaled on it so it sounds like a great idea I'll do that tomorrow morning so tomorrow morning he rushes over there hoping to be able to talk with the king to get the king's permission to do this and 
before he can do it, the king goes, oh, good to see you. Hey, man, come here, come here, come here. I, I got a question I have to ask you. You know, I had some insomnia last night, and I couldn't sleep well. So I had, uh, I don't know, uh, George over here uh, read some stuff to me. And I found out that somebody did something really great for the king, and we haven't, we haven't uh, blessed and acknowledged and honored this guy. Um, what should we do for him? Well, because he's so prideful and arrogant, you know what he thinks? Like, oh, man, the king wants to do something great. For who else in the kingdom would he want to bless but me? He says, oh, I would get the king's robes and I would put them on him. I, I would get the, king, the king's royal stallion and put them on. And I would have somebody walk him throughout all the empire of Susa and, and, and say, Bow before this great one. He says, that's a great idea, Haman. Why don't you get Mordecai, because he saved my life when there was a conspiracy to kill me, and you be the one who's going to be the, the crier who will yell out, bow down for who this guy has done great things for our king. He is so to be honored. He was coming to impale Mordecai. And now he has to walk him through the whole neighborhood of Lodi. <laughs> and by the time that was all done, he goes home licking his wounds, only to have the eunuch be there at the door to say, get dressed, it's time to go to the banquet with Queen Esther and the king. <laughs> He's just losing it. So they came in, verse chapter 6, verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said, What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? And Haman thought to himself, Who would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, If the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as the horse that the king himself has ridden, one with the royal emblem on its head. Let the robe, robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robe. And lead through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go. This is what the king does for someone who wishes he wishes to honor. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes of my horse and do just as you said for Mordecai the Jew. Who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him through the city square, shouting, this is what the king does for someone who wish, he wishes to honor. I just, it just, it's awesome. H had she not asked for a second banquet, that would have never happened. Man, God is just setting this thing up. So verse 3, chapter 7, Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of the people will be spared, for my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could have remained quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Verse 5 and 6. Now the king is probably really losing it. Who would do such a thing? King Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? You're the queen. Who's going to touch my queen? 
And Esther replied, this wicked Haman and our adversary are enemies. You know why he, she uses the word our? Because he's the king, she's the queen, our adversary, our enemy. Woo! Brilliant wording. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. The king gets up. He goes out in the garden area. He's losing it. He is so upset. Here he's promoted this guy, and now this guy is literally trying to have his queen executed, and he, and he tricked the king. He tricked him to sign this decree. So when he walks back in, here's the big bad Haman Oh, queen, oh, queen, please change your mind. Oh, queen, oh, queen. And he's begging her. And in all that, he trips over all the pillows. And he falls upon her. And as the king walks in, he falls on top of her and says, Oh, you're going to molest the queen? Which is a capital offense. He says, one of the, one of the servants suggested, there's the gallows he just made. He says, hang him on it. Impale him on it. And so Haman is executed by the very device he used to kill Mordecai. And now what? Where do we go from here? Because the royal edict has been out. But the king told Mordecai, write up a new one which allows all the Jews to defend themselves, all the weapons that they want. And they were victorious when a year came out. Very few people tried, but there was an attempt. And the Jews were victorious in defending themselves. Let's close with this. God's faithful to protect his people according to his will, no matter what the circumstances are. God's able to use a young girl in poor circumstances and even use those poor circumstances to glorify himself. And God's able to use your poor circumstances for his glory and for your benefit. So we need to learn to listen. We need to learn to be content. We need to learn to look up. And we need to learn to speak out in obedience.